The superhero team-up, a tried-and-true element of the superhero comic books, has really been transplanted to live action. Sure, Batman met Green Hornet in the 1960s TV show, but that was more a product of corporate synergy than any real creative drive. Likewise, the flash of the 1990s TV show what passed a cinematic double bill of Superman and Batman, but this was played for laughs rather than a real acknowledgement that the heroes would get together. There were hints that Lois and Clark and Bal Kilmer's Batman may collide, and the Will Smith vehicle I Am Legend, offered as a post-apocalyptic future where Batman and Superman clashing on screen, was one of the last major movies to be released before civilization collapsed. But by and large, the studios kept their IPs separate. Although that last one seems more of a harbinger than ever before. One precedent had occurred before. In 1984's Supergirl, the title character, played by Helen Slater, stirs in awe at a poster of her cousin, Superman, captured in all his iconic glory by Christopher Reeve. As the John Williams music swells, we are told Superman is off-planet, and thus we were denied any on-screen meeting of these two titans from Krypton. It seemed we were forever destined to not see our heroes meet in live action. And then the Avengers happened, and people wondered why this hadn't occurred before. And then Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. welcomed characters from the Thor movies. And then the DC TV universe, which started slowly with Arrow, introduced us to Barry Allen, who promptly became The Flash and gained his own show. This was followed by numerous ratings-grabbing team-ups, which led to Legends of Tomorrow, a non-team team-up that brought together numerous characters introduced in the other shows. And finally, Supergirl received her primetime television debut, but she was playing with the big boys on a major network. Legends of Tomorrow has had problems with pacing, and its writing generally has been all over the place. The acting has been variable and the characters ill-serviced at times, but there's a good show in there somewhere. One thing it did do was show the viability of crossing characters over from one show to another. Which leads us to The Flash. Grant Gustin has shown himself to be an easygoing and affable Barry Allen, and this has translated to his supporting cast easily for me, the finest of the superhero TV ensembles. The Flash has established that there is a multiverse, where all and any futures are possible. In one such journey, viewers were treated to a merest glimpse of Supergirl, played in her own show by the effervescent Melissa Benoist. This, however, was merely a tease to the main event. On March 28, 2016, as the world was eagerly anticipating the cinematic release of the ultimately headache-inducing snorefest Batman vs Superman, CBS Television aired the 18th episode of Supergirl's first season. Written by Andrew Kreisberg and Michael Grassi and directed by Nick Gomez, this episode promised a live-action team-up of the like never before seen. To the delight of everybody, it actually succeeded. Like most shows of the era, every episode of Supergirl begins with a saga cell, bringing viewers up to speed on the show's premise, and then a previously with a capsule review of the events of the season so far. These are both necessary and irritating. Having the saga cell as a television staple, going back to the early days, but having them not followed up by a credit sequence, but rather another recap, is slightly infuriating. 
I question the usefulness of these previouslys anyway. They're far too quick and scattershot, and often just leave the audience confused rather than enlightened. Supernaturals previously make not a lick of sense to the uninitiated. This one zooms by, reminding the viewer that there are some Kryptonian baddies still knocking around, that Supergirl recently turned evil, and that there are also two other supervillains waiting in their wings for the shot at the big time. Here it is for you to listen to and see if you can make any more sense of it when it's in audio form than when it's presented visually. When I was a child, my planet Krypton was dying. I was sent to Earth to protect my cousin. But my pod got knocked off course, and by the time I got here, my cousin had already grown up and become Superman. And so I hid my powers, until recently when an accident forced me to reveal myself to the world. To most people, I'm an assistant at CatCo Worldwide Media. But in secret, I work with my adoptive sister for the DEO to protect my city from alien life and anyone else that means to cause it harm. I am Supergirl. Previously on Supergirl. Livewire. Water and electricity, never a good match. I saw Jeremiah at Project Cadmus. I'm going to get him back. We're going to get him back. Myriad works, and very soon Astra's dream for what Earth can become will be reality. This is over, James. You love her. I would be jealous of anyone you loved. James, I Don't. I'm... I need a little time. Thank you. My brain was altered. I scared the whole city. And now I'm so afraid that I'm never going to win them back. You are fired. That blonde mean girl ratted me out to the queen of all media. I just want to scream! There's a lot to catch up on here, but the previously is a muddled mess. The cold open does a much better job of imparting all this information to the viewer. Through some funny and well-delivered dialogue, we learn everything the previously told us, but in a far more organic fashion. Supergirl's dilemma, that after exposure to red kryptonite she turned all dark and moody, is even-handed with a modicum of humour, with Supergirl's line that... Last night, I helped a family assemble their IKEA table. ...being genuinely laugh out loud. We also learn about Wynn's girlfriend, Siobhan, being some kind of meta-human, and that she and he may have been intimate, a wonderfully clumsy moment that has a magnificent eye roll from Benoist. Wynn has been a curious character on the show from the get-go. Established as Supergirl's version of Jimmy Olsen, he's been geeky and awkward, but moderately entertaining. Having him be the son of a Superman villain, the Toy Man, was an interesting way to go, as there was a lot of interesting character explanation that could have gone on there. How do you go on with life when your dad's a notorious supervillain? However, this has been largely eschewed, and Wynne is largely there to moon over Kara, get in trouble and to be endearingly gawky, which, to be fair, actor Jeremy Jordan does quite well. But it seems to me that equality should be more than swapping out the always-in-trouble Lois Lane for her male equivalent. Siobhan has been brought to the DEO, the Department of Extraordinary Activities, where Kara's half-sister Alex works in conjunction with David Harwood as the Martian Manhunter. Neither of those two characters are in this episode. Siobhan gets pretty pissed off that the Doctor isn't able to determine what's wrong with her, and then, rather inexplicably, she's allowed to wander absolutely unencumbered around a top-secret government facility. Siobhan has been a problematic character from the get-go. Ample bosom aside, I often wondered what Wynne saw in her, and she was a cipher, a spoiled princess with entitlement issues. 
She completely takes for granted that Wynne brought her to the DEO for a medical examination, something I presume she didn't pay for, sulks when they can't find anything and is generally a moody and unpleasant person. This is after she spent numerous episodes trying to steal Kara's job by being a backstabbing, conniving sow. It's also evidence of these schizophrenic writing on the show. Siobhan has to wander off on her own, because if she doesn't, she can't hear the information that she needs to hear for later on in the story, and Livewire and Silver Banshee, who end up being the bad guys in this particular episode, have no reason to team up. It's lazy writing because it shows that the DEO is incredibly lax in its security, but given that they just let Barry Allen wander around willy-nilly later on, let's assume that the DEO does indeed have problems with its security personnel, and that's something that the person in charge, Lucy Lane, will be looking at very soon. Even stranger than Siobhan being just simply allowed to poke around a facility such as this is that she's allowed to wander right near the prison cells where an interrogation is in progress. Even odder! A security guard watches her go to the cells and then just waits so she can hear what the writers need her to hear before escorting her away. What she hears is the aforementioned Livewire telling Lucy Lane, who is now the head of the DEO, that Supergirl, Cat Grant and then the whole DEO will pay when she inevitably escapes. This appeals to Siobhan because she blames everybody else for her problems, not least Supergirl and Cat Grant, so two out of three ain't bad. Lucy is played by Jenna Dewan Tatum, Siobhan by Italia Rishi, and Livewire by Britt Morgan, all fine in their roles, but Tatum and Ritchie have that bland, pretty brunette look that all the girls in these kind of shows seem to have, making it difficult to often tell them apart. Clara returns to Catco for a pep talk with Cat, in which cupcakes are metaphors for boys, and Clara decides not to pursue her love interest, Jimmy Olsen, played by McCard Brooks. Cat is the wonderful Callista Flockhart, whose development this season has been one of the true joys of the show. McCard Brooks essays Jimmy Olsen. Olsen has been one of the hardest people to like in this show for me, not because of his racial recasting, but because I have a really hard time seeing a live-action Jimmy who is handsome and buff. This guy is cooler than anyone else on the show. Kara is a bumbling geek, wins a computer geek. Cat is a controlling narcissist, whereas Jimmy is effortlessly calm and level-headed. As someone who grew up with the golly Mr. Kent version of Jimmy, this was a hard transition. After storming out of the facility, which lest we forget is in the middle of nowhere, something you would be forgiven for forgetting, given that people just seem to drop by as if they're popping in their local Starbucks, Siobhan starts having migraines and fits in the middle of the streets of National City. With a steely-eyed look of resolve, Siobhan recovers and heads to Catco, where she sonic screams Kara out of a window, which, last I checked, was attempted murder. Anyway, Kara's going to be fine, right? After all, she's going to be rescued by the hero of the show, right? Wrong. Kara is saved by the Flash. seem that bothered by the fact that you're on fire i didn't need you to save me <laughs> uh, you just fell from a skyscraper so if i hadn't been there you would have gone splat i have to get back to the city
that? I'm Supergirl. You're who now? Sorry, I was just, was just a little disoriented from the, the scream. How did you save me? Well, I... You, you fell out a window, and I... I caught you and ran you all the way out here, which I did not mean to do, but I've been working on my speed, and I guess I'm faster than I thought. Yeah, yes, but I... The who now? The fl Wait, do you not know who I am? Should I? What about the green arrow? Black canary? Firestorm? Adam? Zoom? Sorry. Oh, boy. Not as sorry as I am. <laughs> hey, I'm Barry Allen. I'm the fastest man alive. I also think that I am on the wrong earth. I'm gonna need your help. Despite some lapses in logic, all of this is handled quickly and efficiently in just over 10 minutes of screen time, which in today's parlance is before we see the title card. The viewer has been brought up to date on the myriad subplots thus far. We've been introduced to the main characters, we've met the two main villains, and the Flash has arrived, setting in motion the driving force of the plot for the episode. Benoist and guest star Grant Gustin are immediately adorable together, and him unmasking is as silly here as it is in his own show. Gustin clearly can't take off the mask without assistance from numerous stagehands and wardrobe people, so whenever he does, there's a quick cut to the back of his head as he swaps out the maskless version of the suit. It's never not funny. Post-commercial break, Barry is introduced to Jimmy and Wynn, who know Kara's secret, and the theory of the multiverse is explained on a whiteboard, just like in Back to the Future 2. This scene is even more adorable than the intro. Barry and Kara immediately have a flirtatious relationship, which irks Jimmy, who has a crush on Kara. Wynne is immediately won over by Barry when Barry explains that the multiverse theory is true. But Oyst and Jordan have some great moments where they gleefully dance a happy dance at Barry's arrival. Gustin's reaction to learning Kara is an alien is noteworthy, and Brooks plays Jimmy's jealousy for all it's worth in facial tics and body language. This is absolutely wonderful material, played by actors who all look like they are having the best day at work ever. The subtext of the scene is also well done. Barry is oblivious to the character dynamics. Wynne, who did have a crush on Kara but has now moved on to insane supervillains, immediately spots that Jimmy isn't pleased with this new arrival, who flirts quite openly with the coquettish and appreciative Kara. Barry's first meeting with Cat is even funnier, so rather than even attempt to describe it, I'm going to play it for you. Kara, you're alive. Miss Grant, don't worry. Stop stating the obvious. You're in the middle of breaking news and I want you to act like it. And yes, yes, another one of my ex-employees went all revengey, but... There's a new superhero in National City. This is huge. Direct competition for Supergirl. It doesn't have to be competition. Would you prefer a sidekick? No, not a sidekick. <laughs> More like an equal. Or an ally. Even a partner, maybe. Speaking was the wrong choice, I see that now. All four of you standing there doing nothing. You look like the attractive yet non-threatening racially diverse cast of a CW show. Who are you? Uh, uh, he's my cousin. My cousin. No, I'm, my name's Barry Allen. I'm not actually... 
anybody's cousin. Uh, we're just such good friends. Yeah, it feels like we're family sometimes. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, I need a clear picture of this speedster, James. That's on you. And Kira, there are a lot of people who want to know what happened. Speak to no one. You're mine. I will let you know when you should reveal this exclusive information. Now I have to name this hero. I was thinking about the whoosh or the red streak or the blur. What about the flash? I'm just saying, I think that's a pretty cool superhero name, right? The flash sounds like someone whose only superpower is jumping out of an alley in a trench coat. No. I want mystery. I want intrigue. I want the blur. Boys be gone. Girl, stay. I think the big takeout from that clip is that Supergirl's world has a CW, but doesn't have a Flash TV show, and presumably not an Arrow TV show either. All this humorous character interplay is all well and good, but we have a story to tell. Siobhan goes to visit her aunt, a cliched Irish fortune teller type played by Fraser Crane's agent, actress Harriet Sansom Harris, who tells Siobhan that she's been cursed by a banshee, and she must therefore destroy the object of her hatred. Siobhan decides that the best way to go about this is to team up with Livewire, who can distract Supergirl, while she concentrates on killing Kara. All of this is moderately comic book faithful, with some minor alterations, and is played adequately enough. The plot really isn't that important here, to be honest. Kara confronts Cat to tell her Livewire has escaped, but cats don't run for anybody. Concerned that she can't protect Cat from Siobhan, or the populace at large from Livewire, Kara taps Barry to help her out. Barry wants to make a plan, but Supergirl is gung-ho to get this over with, and they rush into the job. Thanks to Barry, they track Siobhan and Livewire to an abandoned warehouse, something the Flash notes is consistent on both worlds, but not knowing quite what they are doing, Flash powers up Livewire in error. Siobhan has had a goth makeup and rechristened herself Silver Banshee, and she takes on Supergirl. Silver Banshee's look is one of the most faithful comic book to screen transitions ever achieved, with Banshee looking like she stepped off the pages of a 1980s comic. The fight is really cool, with both Supergirl and The Flash giving their powers a good showing, and we even get to see The Flash use both his arm to generate a wind tunnel, always a cool effect in the comic books. However, both realise that this is a stalemate, and they retreat to regroup and fight another day. After a soapy pep talk, Barry and Kara decide that they need to be better prepared and head to the DEO where Barry whips some earbuds up to protect them against Silver Banshee's sonic scream. They receive word from Jimmy that Banshee and Livewire are kidnapped cat and they speed over to National City Park where Livewire plans to declaw Miss Grant on live television. The Flash and Supergirl then tackle Livewire and Silver Banshee in the park. It's not a bad fight but the budget lets it down a bit in that it's quite quick and low key. The Flash chases Silver Banshee up a building, which is cool, and Supergirl gets fried by Livewire saving a helicopter, which is also not a terrible special effect. This also has the effect of galvanising the people of National City into rallying around Supergirl, and the fire brigade arrive and douse Livewire with water, which is exactly how she was stopped last time. You'd think she'd learn from her mistakes. On the one hand, this final fight just can't help but be disappointing. It has its cool moments and all, but it's over quite quickly and relatively unspectacular. On the other, this level of special effects would have been unheard of but five years ago, so the fact that we even get a smackdown of this type on a TV budget is pretty amazing. 
Besides, this hour hasn't been about the effects. It's been about the characters and the sheer joie de vivre of having these two meet each other. Every scene between them has crackled, with even the supporting cast being given moments of levity and drama. The entire ensemble has upped their game in this one, just a sublimely wonderful hour of TV. Besides, years of Doctor Who has taught us that a good script can paper over any special effects cracks, and it's better to be overly ambitious than lacklustre. We've all sat through wonderfully expensive summer blockbusters that are actually really boring special effects demo reels in search of character and humour, so to complain at any of this seems a little churlish. The episode wraps up with Kat making it very clear that she knows that The Flash and Barry are one and the same, and heavily implies she knows Kara is Supergirl, something she did find out early in the season, but pretend she doesn't know anymore. I prefer to think Kat does know, after all she's too smart not to, and prefers to keep it a secret because Supergirl, thanks to Catco, has become an icon and heroic symbol for all, and revealing she's really a schlubby PA would hurt her image. Supergirl and the Flash get together to send the Flash back home. You really think this is going to work? Well, watching Livewire and Banshee work together reminded me of something that we tried on my Earth once. You and I join forces. Literally. We combine your speed with my speed. If you throw me forward at your fastest, then... I might just break the dimensional barrier and get back home. What What do you mean, like, a race? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Think you can keep up, Girl of Steel? Oh, just you watch Scarlet Speedster. <laughs> All right. I'm going to miss you, Barry Allen. I'm really going to miss you, too, Cara Danvers. Or Cara Zorel. Which is your alien name, because you're an alien, which I think is very cool. <laughs> I think James Olsen thinks so, too. <laughs> what makes you say that? You remember before when I told you to take things slow? It's good advice for a superhero. Lousy advice for two people who really like each other. Maybe it's time to speed things up. Denouement, Kara makes a move on Jimmy, which is just set up for the two-part season finale to follow, and as such isn't really a part of this episode. What is a part of this episode is the fun that is clearly being had by all involved, including the viewer. The plot isn't really anything that special. Supergirl could have figured all this out on her own had Barry not been here. But the interplay between the characters and the actors is contagious, leaving the viewer with a warm and fuzzy glow after the credits roll. There's even thematic similarities to the bigger-budgeted Batman vs Superman, with Supergirl feeling lost and alone after the events of the previous episodes, and having lost the support of the general public. Unlike that movie, however, this has a payoff here that, cheesy though it is, resolves the storyline in an acceptable manner. It's similar to Spider-Man 2, where it was just as cheesy, but equally as effective. 
While some of the writing across the whole of the first season of Supergirl was uneven, this show demonstrates where its true strengths lie. The series scored with its characterisation, acting and general feeling of joy that permeated the series. Melissa Benoist was clearly the standout, embracing the character wholeheartedly. She's one of the best cast actors to ever don a superhero outfit. However, Callista Flockhart shouldn't be underestimated. She took a rather one-dimensional and supercilious Cat Grant and turned her into an interesting three-dimensional and frequently hilarious character. Overall, despite the problems, Supergirl became one of the television joys of the last TV season and a fine addition to DC's already impressive television slate. As it flies to a second season on the racially diverse and unthreatening CW network, one can only hope it doesn't just fly, but soars. I was left with one question at the end of this, though. How did Supergirl get her ears pierced? and Chill is a podcast that discusses your favorite topics from the world of the nerdy. From Game of Thrones to Star Wars and beyond, Nerdflix and Chill is your place for show recaps, film reviews, and general conversations about all things geek. Be sure to check us out on Stitcher and on iTunes, where you can subscribe and leave us reviews. You can also follow us on Twitter at NerdflixChill and let us know your opinions because we want to hear from you. Thank you, and may the Force be with you because the night is dark and full of terrors. And we're back with a collection of emails from out of the email sack. It's always nice to receive your missives. So uh, let's, without further ado, delve straight in. And the first one that we pull out tonight is from the mighty Chris Franklin. Hello, Andy. Hello, Christopher. And here I thought you were going to talk about Cap Subby and the Human Torch. He says in the beginning of an email entitled Palace of Invading Delights. I had heard of the Invaders TV series before, but never watched it. Sounds intriguing, though. But even without ever watching it, I get what you mean by the formula killing the show. For a similar outcome, you need to look no further than another influence in the X-Files, Kolchak the Night Stalker. I've been re-watching the series on Netflix, and though love it as I do, man is that show formulaic. As you said of The Invaders, it doesn't hold up to any amount of binge-watching. I've been digesting episodes about once a month because of this. Plus, the stories are quickly wrapped up with either no one believing Kolchak or everyone involved being willing to just keep their mouths shut over the weird goings-on. That's not going to happen in any real-world scenario. Credulity is often ran over the tank by episode's end. Formula was the bane of many TV series' existence, and I think that's what ultimately doomed Batman 66. By the time they were forced to move away from the standard formula in season 3 due to losing an episode a week, the die was cast and most viewers had moved on. Anyway, great show, and now I have to see if I can track this series down. 
Chris. Uh, well, Chris is absolutely right about Kolchak. Kolchak's another favourite of mine that I've had on DVD for a while. And Chris is right, you, you can't binge watch that show. You have to watch an episode, maybe leave it a week or so, maybe, as it was originally intended to be seen, really, on a weekly schedule. The the, the high point of Kolchak is obviously still the two TV movies that preceded the television show, and they are still highly recommended, and a future topic for this show, perhaps, because both of them are undeniably excellent. Another email about the invaders came from Kirk Groenfield, or Kirk Greenfield. Hello, Andy. Hey, Kirk. I started listening to the Invaders show and was surprised that it was so short. I did enjoy it, though. Well, I think that came from the fact that the Invaders wasn't really that deep. It was a good pilot episode. I enjoyed watching it, but I only covered the pilot largely because the formula for other episodes of this had been to cover a number of different episodes of the same show or different shows with a, a same through line running through them or with something like But Rogers. Princess Adala's appearances in the show, which were often the better episodes. With the Invaders, the ones that I have caught on the Horror Channel as it was rescreened, there was a samey feel to a lot of them. And I did feel that doing a show about a show that was quite samey would be quite samey. So I kind of left it with just a discussion of the pilot. It's not that I don't think The Invaders is eminently watchable. I do. I think it's still an entertaining show, but I didn't feel that it lent itself to watching a number of them and, and talking about them. Although later in Series 2, David Vincent does gain a friend who does believe him and help him out a bit. So they did make some minor alterations to the, uh, to the premise of the show. Kurt goes on to say, I did notice there were a couple of points where your narration over the soundtrack and quotes were a bit overwhelmed by the background sounds. Um, I proof listened to it and didn't notice... Uh, he does suggest the timings if I wanted to go back and edit it, but the thing is, once I put the show up, I normally delete the original files, which was the case here, but, you know. I did listen to the show twice, however, says Kurt, during my daily commute to work, and I could follow it. Just thought I'd offer that. Oh, well, so it being short meant that you listened twice. That's quite nice. Kurt continues, I swear there had been a hook where the invaders could not master the human little finger, and as a result, the tip-off was the bent little finger to recognise that it's one of them. Or am I misremembering Kirk? No! Kirk, you are exactly correct in that. There is um, a story point that's mentioned that Vincent can spot aliens by the fact that the little finger is at a crooked angle. And that uh, that is uh, a plot point throughout the, the show. Thank you for emailing in, Kirk. Very much appreciated. Our next email is from Patrick Delmore. Once upon a time, there was a robot. Hi, Andy. I loved your last episode of Walloping Web Snappers. I'm glad you took your time with putting it out as it rivals the first episode of the Lee Dicto retrospective as being the best of the series. I particularly liked how you described the penultimate issue. How did the shooter get away? Could he have been on a glider of some kind? This is how I will narrate the comic once my nephew is old enough to listen. I've never seen the end of the Ditko run in colour. I got the Craven and Looter issues of Marvel Tales, but the rest of the series I've only read in Essential Volume 2. And again, you're really selling me on getting the omnibus. Thank you for a great show, Patrick. Well, you're very welcome, Patrick. Those Spider-Man Lee Ditko stories, issues, episodes, whatever you want to call it, really do seem to have gone over quite well, uh, which I'm very appreciative of. They were very much a labour of love. I very much enjoyed doing them. I did take my time doing them. I can only apologise to you, the lovely listener, that they only came out very sporadically, but as I, I did 
point out a number of times in the email sections to these shows they they were they were they were hard to do they were they were difficult to do it was difficult to find the time to devote to not only reading them but pouring over them and making the notes for each issue and trying not to miss anything out that I felt was of import because it's going to be the only time that I get to cover them and I wanted to do a good job with it, or as good a job as, as I could do with it, in light of, you know, there may always be further information that comes to light in the future, but I wanted them to stand as my love letter to the Lee Ditko era of Spider-Man, which is still, for me, the finest run of superhero comics that has ever been published, or ever will be published. It's not going to be beaten, because even other stuff that come along after that is, is living in the shadow of that. So, you know, even something as magnificent as I believe James Robinson's Starman is, from what people have said to me, it's still building on the Lee Ditko groundwork that, that they're laid down with Spider-Man. Um, another email from Chris Franklin, who also emailed in about the Lee Ditko issues. Palace of Ditko turned out the lights. Hello, Andy. Hello, Christopher, again. We've reached the end I've thoroughly enjoyed your recap of the Lee Ditko Spidey run. To me, the alpha and omega of the character. I was a fan of the Ramita years for sure, but there was something about those Ditko years that no one ever recaptured. Maybe it was Ditko's own misfit nature that bled through, made it seem all the more sincere, more true. Even though his Peter became more confident and asserted himself more, he was still relatively despised by his peers. This all loosened up when Ramita came in. I wish Peter had punched Flash out. Stan and Steve should have given us that moment. They came close in the high school boxing match robot issue, but Peter was blamed for sucker-punching Flash. If Peter had just pulled his punch here and love-tapped Flash just enough to knock him on his ass, think of what a memorable moment that would have been. Up there with the upcoming Face It Tiger? Maybe not, but it probably would have been a meme before there was such a thing. I need to go back and reread my Marvel tales. I had forgotten how sinister Ditko portrayed Norman Osborn. It sure sounds like he was setting him up for something. I don't really buy the Goblin reveal being the reason for the lead Ditko split either. I think Ditko's increasing belief in Rand's philosophy made it impossible for him to work in that environment any longer, but we'll never really know, will we? Great coverage, as always. Fascinating insight into this hallowed run. Looking forward to Untold Tales, Chris. Well, thank you very much, Chris. That was very much appreciated. Uh, as I said, labour of love. Glad you enjoyed them. Uh, yeah, Untold Tales will be coming as soon as I've done a couple of palate cleanser episodes, like I've done this Supergirl one, which basically came from nowhere, I will be honest with you. I've had it tootling around in the back of the mind for a while, but there's a part of me that kind of thinks that this is very nostalgic show, looking at old stuff, and I kind of thought, well, maybe Supergirl's a bit too recent. But then I thought, oh, it's my show, if I want to break the rules, I can break the rules. Especially since there's no rules to break. So that made it quite an easy decision. But I still would love to do uh, something with The Man from Atlantis. I'm very intrigued by revisiting that show. Uh, we've got another returning email. Kurt Gruenwald has uh, emailed back about the Lee Ditko Spider-Man shows. Hey Andy, just a quick note to say I almost bypassed the Spidey shows on Palace of Glittering Belights, but then thought I might sample one. What a great survey of the series. I'm hooked after the first part. Though I've read the original reprints in Marvel Tales and the reissued serial reprints in the 1980s, I'd never looked at the character development, the sequential build, and the shift in plotting control of the series. Love your enthusiasm and passion in your presentation. It's obvious that you've taken time to read, research and write out your comments and observations, which makes for an engaging podcast. As I've said before, you ought to be able to make some cash from all this work. Have you considered organising your essays into a serial blog and look for a sponsor or ad revenue? Um, do you know, Kirk has mentioned that before, but I've not really mentioned thought about 
doing it. I mean, the notes are there. They're all in long form, and I do write them out, so it was kind of you to spot that. But I I don't know that anyone would want to pay for my witterings. I mean, I did repurpose one set of notes for uh, an article in Back Issue magazine, and it was nice, I'm not going to lie, to make a little bit of money from that. But when I read it back, I just saw all the mistakes and places where I'd cocked up, and I do wonder how professional writers manage that. Kurt continues, I'm up to the third instalment of Lee Ditko and I've had some bad news. At the end of the review of Amazing Spider-Man 18 and the early in Amazing Spider-Man issue 19, you have not one but two missed edits. While stating that Peter gets a kick in the rear by Aunt May, you repeat the same clause twice, as if you'd meant to eliminate the first reading of the line and tag it with the second reading. Something similar happens a few minutes later during the review of issue 19. Perhaps it's too late to do anything about them now, but I thought you might like to know about them. And unusually, because they were recorded on my old laptop, I still did have the original files for those. So I was able to go back and fix the uh, minor errors in that issue that Kirk had found. So thank you, Kirk, for pointing those out. Future listeners will never know that those mistakes existed because I have erased them and uploaded a new episode. So like George Lucas... I have tinkered with my own art and made the original versions no longer available. (laughs) I'm such a stinker. Kirk also continues. I have another question about something else I couldn't quite hear you say. In describing the Beatles outfit costume in Amazing Spider-Man issue 21, I'm familiar with him in Strange Tales, you refer to his green and purple costume as well as long gloves with three suckers on the ends of the fingers, a green boiler man suit and a purple helmet, and then you say something I can't make out. I wondered if this was a subtle joke or a sotto voice comment, perhaps something that plays on the expression purple helmet or rude in-joke that I didn't get. I think I said something like FNAF no, which is a carry-on gag. I don't always get some of the British expressions, continues Kurt, like dogpile onto spider, but at least I get knackered since listening to the fantastic cast. Perhaps you can enlighten me on what you might have just said. Uh, but I just did. Um, do you not do dogpiling? In I'm sure you pile onto people and you're beating the crap out of them, don't you? That's all that is. Uh, and I'm glad that you're getting knackered, because knackered just means tired. Um, I mean, it was either FNAF, FNAF or Uwe misses. I, I forget which. Uh, Kirk concludes with, You say that Spidey rescues Jam- Jameson's son, sorry, from the space shuttle. However, it also comes up multiple times, and each time you call it the space shuttle. Not sure why you do this unless John Burns rebooted update the spacecraft from the Mercury space capsule to the then-current space shuttle. The shuttle even wasn't dreamed of when Spider-Man began. The Ditko imagery is unquestionably the Mercury space capsule. In fact, the first appearance in fiction of anything remotely like a space shuttle is the X-1 rescue craft that is read and used in the conclusion of the classic 1969 movie Marooned. It's never referred to as a space shuttle, but is unquestionably the prototype for the later fleet in real life. Still enjoying the Lee Ditko Spider-Man shows Kirk. Um... I said shuttle instead of capsule. I've got to be honest with you, that's a MacGuffin and doesn't really matter to me that much. That's not what the story's about. He could have been in a car with the handbrake cut and careening down a, um, a hill, really, and the story would still have played out the same way. But yeah, it's a capsule, not a shuttle. Uh, signed off, your friend and supporter, Kurt Greenfield, co-host of the Imperious Rex, Confessions of a Serial Surface Invader podcast on Mediafire, your listen or Tumblr. And that, as you can probably hear from me scrolling through, cleans out the email bag because obviously I've not released an episode 
other than this one since that ha- anyway you know what i mean thank you very much for listening i hope you enjoyed this impromptu supergirl episode as usual there is a amazon link on the two true website that you can click whenever purchasing your pornographic or ill-suited material on uh, amazon don't worry, we, we don't get to see who buys what. So you can buy your, your whips and your chains or whatever it is that floats your boat and uh, we get a cake back from that, which is nice because it keeps all of our shows on the earth. And you don't want us to go away, do you? As usual, the Palace of Glittering Delights is at The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do Production and a Two True Freaks Proud presentation. Email to the show can be sent to heykidscomics at virginmedia.com and maybe one day I will make a, an email address for this show. Who knows? It may happen. Thank you for joining me. Hope you enjoyed it. Next time, who knows? We're, we'll go wherever wherever my heart may take me. Hey, that's a thought. Maybe I could do an Enterprise episode. See you next time. Bye-bye.